Well, it is, it is really, really good to be here. I, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and then Paul goes on to say to many others as well. Let's, let's pray. Father, may it be that your word would speak hope to us courage to us, faith to us in this moment, in this generation, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first, first message that was delivered at Risen Hope uh, was from 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 2, where Paul writes, I have decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. We determined as a, as a group, this is, this is our message. This is why we're here. This is our mission. Preach Jesus and him crucified. The second message was 1 Corinthians chapter 15, a message I entitled Risen Hope, which is based on this text of scripture that tells us, that reminds us with depth and with arguments and with clarity that Jesus Christ is alive, and because he is alive, we have hope. This is trivia more. I don't have any turkey trivia for you, but I do have 20 years from now when Risen Hope folks are doing trivia day, and they're asked the question, what was the first song we ever sung as a new congregation, as a new campus? The, so the answer will be, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. The last stanza of which is, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright, shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Our first song as a new congregation had something to say about Christian hope, had something to say about heaven, it had something to say about the eternal joys of God's people. This has always been the case with Christians, with the church of Jesus. We believe in, we look for, we long for the second coming of our Savior Jesus Christ. And when it comes to heaven, and when it comes to the life hereafter, there, there are two common options presently available to us in our contemporary setting. One of them is the perspective of the author Ernest Hemingway. It was said of him at the occasion of his death by suicide, he was eulogized with these words, Hemingway believed that life is a short day's journey from nothingness to nothingness. That was an explicit statement of Hemingway's belief that human existence is essentially meaningless and it is utterly futile to hope for anything more or anything better hereafter. 
And his perspective has been echoed almost to the volume of a scream of despair by countless sons and daughters of futility ever since. We live in a day of despair, but we as Christians choose another option. We do see this world as an in-between world. We, we see this world and our life in it as a short day's journey, but not from nothingness to nothingness, but from nothingness, our nothingness, to eternal glory and wonder and praise. We would rather follow the thinking of C.S. Lewis, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And we do find such desires, don't we? We find desires for eternal love. We find desires for joy. We find desire for beauty and truth and goodness and permanence. All those experience, experiences in an unfading kind of way. We want a world, we long for a world where everything is right, including us, and it stays that way, never to be lost or diminished. Now the question is, is that a real hope or is that a fantasy? Is that just a dream? Is just that something that we, we fantasize about, we we long for, but it has no connection to reality, or is it a real hope? Is it something that is true? I would suggest to you this morning that it is a real hope, that it is risen hope in Jesus Christ. Paul, in 1 Corinthians, is talking to us about things that matter. He says in verse three, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. He is saying these things are essential. These things matter. These things are of first importance that Christ died for our sins. Christ bore the wrath and the punishment our sins deserved. In his body on the tree, he, he was the propitiation. He was the, the sacrifice that took away the wrath of God and satisfied the justice of God so that we could be justly forgiven of our sins without being punished for them. Christ died for our sins and he was buried. It means he was really dead. He was really dead completely dead, put in the ground, dead. But Paul says he was raised from the dead. He came back to life, conquering death and the grave and sin. And Paul says, he appeared to many. And he's coming back. Paul says, these are the essentials. These are the things of first importance. There are many things important about our faith. There's many, there are many things important in God's word, but these are the things of first importance. These are the things that matter the most. These are the essentials. And there's one essential that, that I want us to consider together this morning. It's this. Christ is risen, and the risen Christ is both our reason to hope and our motive to serve. Christ is risen and the risen Christ is both our reason to hope and our motive to serve. And I want to 
establish that hopefully by God's grace in our minds by looking first at the fact of the resurrection and then at the promises of the resurrection. And by doing that, my hope, my prayer is that we will see that he, the risen Christ, is our reason to hope and he is our motive to serve. So let's begin with the fact of the resurrection. We see this in chapter 15 and beginning in verse 3, we're told that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, verse 4, that he was raised, verse 4, and then verse 5, that he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. Then he appeared to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. What, what I want us to see as we begin this morning is that there were people that Paul was writing to, as there are people today, as there are people I, I guarantee in this room this morning who doubt, who disbelieve the resurrection of Jesus. Paul was writing to such people and he wants them to know that there is not just the claim of a risen Christ, there is proof of that claim. He appeared to many. He was seen. That's what the word means. He wasn't merely felt or sensed in some kind of spiritual abstract way. He wasn't dreamed about or hallucinated. He appeared so as to be seen with the eye of many. What Paul is doing here is rooting our faith in history. He is grounding it in something that actually happened, that was real, that was substantiated by eyewitness testimony. He's saying that a part of this gospel, a part of the things that are of first importance is not, that, not just that Jesus was risen from the dead, but that he was proven to be alive from the dead. That God made sure not only to raise Jesus, but to show people that he was risen, to prove that he was alive. What Paul is saying here is this, and if you're one of those who were described earlier and prayed with earlier, uh, those who perhaps came in lost this morning looking for answers, um, I, want, I want you to hear this. You may, you may find yourself... Um, Say, well, I want, I want some answers, but I don't want to get duped. I don't want to get fooled. Um, I'm here to tell you that the answer is Jesus, and there's proof. And, and you don't have to you know, lift off the top of your head and, and take your brain out and leave it at the front door when you walk in here. Keep your brain in. Be willing to think and be willing to look at the evidence. Be willing to, to consider. He appeared to many. And, it, and it's, it's fascinating to think about the ones he appeared to. He appeared to Paul. We won't look at all these, but we'll just keep it to Paul this morning. Look at verse 9. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. Why? Because I persecuted the church of God. You need to understand that Paul was a man who hated Jesus. He hated the church. 
It was not like he was biased toward Jesus and inclined to trust in Jesus. No, he was opposed to Christ. He hated Christians. He persecuted Christians. He was trying to and succeeded in killing Christians. He was a hostile person who suddenly had his life radically turned around, suddenly had his life radically changed and became no longer a persecutor of the church, but a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's something compelling about the testimony of a witness who affirms something that he doesn't want to affirm, who speaks positively, who bears a positive witness about someone else that he hates. It's kind of like the experience I had back in the late 90s as a Boston Red Sox fan. And now I'm not going to talk about our success. I'm going to talk about the years of failure. And there were many. But back in the late 90s, my Red Sox were continuing to lose. And every year they lost to the same team. It was the Yankees. And I had a holy loathing (laughs) of the Yankees. I pity them now. I loathe them then. It it was a righteous thing. but It it was serious. I didn't like the Yankees. But in the late 90s, when they were winning four championships in, what, five years? I remember times in my weaker moments when I would say to people, you know what, I hate to say it, but the Yankees are really good. And they even are doing it with class. And then I had to, I had to go to confession <laughs> to, to deal with it. But the, think about that. For a Red Sox fan, to bear positive testimony about the Yankees means that there had to have been something really good going on with the Yankees those days. When an antagonistic witness speaks positively about one hated or despised, that's testimony to be paid attention to. And folks, it wasn't just Paul. It was this whole 500 plus who came to believe in Jesus. They were, for the most part, they were all orthodox, card-carrying Jewish folks who, who had no concept of God coming in the flesh. And the thought of God being crucified, being hung on a tree was an absolute scandal to them. And yet here they are. Say, not only was he hung on the cross, but he is risen from the dead. And then, many of them proceeded to suffer and suffer greatly for the testimony that they were given. Later on in chapter 15, Paul himself says that because of his ministry, because of his proclaiming of the risen Christ, he says, I die daily. Every day of my life, I experience death to myself, death to my comfort, my ease, my luxury, my reputation. Everything about me dies, and I am, he didn't know this then, but 
He probably could assume and see it coming. He was going to die a martyr's death. And he went to a martyr's death for the sake of the message of Christ that he had come to embrace because he himself had seen the risen Christ. Folks, this is powerful evidence. This is powerful evidence that Jesus is, in fact, alive. And and can I just pause to say there's something like this going on in many parts of the world right now. I I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but there are Muslims coming to faith in Jesus by the millions. There are... I have looked at various sources and, and even Muslim sources indicate that there's somewhere around six million, six and a half million Muslims converting to Christ every year. That's 650 an hour. And what we're hearing is that, and we're hearing this from men like Franklin Graham and Ravi Zacharias and World Magazine and other sources. What we're hearing is that thousands and thousands of them are coming to faith in Christ because they have experienced a powerful vision or dream of Christ or a miracle or a healing or some other supernatural activity of Jesus Christ directly in their lives that is compelling them to come to faith. And folks, think about it. For for a Muslim in many parts of the world to come to faith means instant sentence of death. At the very least, it means being ostracized, being hated, being rejected. And yet they're coming to Christ anyways. By the millions. Why? Well, because Christ himself is is proving the reality of who he is in their lives. And in such a compelling way that they are bending their knee to Christ no matter what the cost in their life. So what happened with Paul, though I am sure different in certain ways in its dramatic nature and, and, and in the impact, is happening in lesser ways in the lives of millions across the world. And this happened in other ways in all the lives of every believer in this room. Where we ourselves can bear testimony to the fact that while once we hated Christ, we now love Christ. And we are convinced to believe in Christ because we have seen in our lives and in the lives of others the powerful effect of the gospel that transforms Folks, this is, this is not a fantasy, this is not a dream, this is not a hallucination, this is not wishful thinking, pie in the sky, this is reality, it's a fact. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. And the risen Christ is both our reason to hope and our motive to serve. He is our reason to hope because the resurrection of Christ brings with it two wonderful promises in, verse, in chapter 15. The first is found in verses 20 through 27. This is the promise of the restoration of all things. Look at this, verse 20. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. 
For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, the Father, who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. The resurrection of Jesus Christ brings with it the promise of the restoration of all things. I don't know about you, but I long for the day when everything is made new. You know, I said earlier that this time of the year can be a challenge for folks. It's a challenge for Galen and me. This is between Thanksgiving and Christmas. We've had a house fire, we've lost three parents, had a son diagnosed with cancer, had other major family crises. Uh, it's a tough time of the year, tough time of the year. We long for the day when everything's made right. Everything is made right. When there is the restoration of all things. What's, what's being described here? is the present invisible reign of Jesus Christ. He has been exalted, not just raised from the dead. He has ascended into heaven. He is exalted at the Father's right hand. He is reigning now as Lord, and he will reign until every enemy has been made his footstool. And when every enemy is subjected to him, including the last of the enemies, which is death itself, then the son will turn to the father and say, now, father, it is all to your glory. And now you are all in all. To all God's people, you are everything. And everything is filled with your glory. Everything is restored. And it's not just waiting for then, it's starting now. He is presently reigning. He is presently bringing his enemies into submission. He's doing that through your witness. He's doing that through your testimony. He is doing that through your life. He's doing that through covenant fellowship. He's doing that through risen hope. Every time we do anything, we eat, we drink, we create something, we work, we teach, we coach, we parent, we we do the soccer mom thing, we, we do our plumbing, we Facebook, we, we draw, we write songs, we buy milk. Every time we do anything for the glory of God, shining as a light for Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God is inching its way forward in and through our lives. And people are getting changed and spiritual forces are being brought into submission and bondage and addiction and evil are being broken. Jesus rules as one enemy after another submits to him. And it goes on and it goes on and it goes on. Six and a half million Muslims coming to Christ every year at a time when you would think that every person on the planet is opposed to Christ. Jesus keeps on reigning. 
And Jesus keeps on working. And he will continue this, Lord. He will continue this. And so, yeah, when the, the addict and the, the drunk is set free, that is King Jesus breaking the chains of addiction. And when the depressed person and the discouraged person finds new hope and fellowship with the people of God, that's King Jesus slaying the blues. And when pastors and people get together with others who are different from them, different in culture or color or age or economic condition or politics, and there's dialogue and a coming to understanding and a coming to respect. That's King Jesus tearing down the stronghold of racism and class distinction. It's happening today. Today. When members of a church carry the gospel wherever they go and share it with whomever they meet, that is King Jesus conquering the world with his love and his mercy. And this will continue until every last enemy is made his footstool. This is a cosmic thing, not just a personal thing. Jesus is your king. He's king of everything. He's king of everything. And the day's gonna come when the headline reads, attention, all things are made new. Medical alert. All disease has been instantaneously eradicated. Newsflash, lion and lamb seen frolicking in the field. <laughs> this, is, this is what's in store. This is what's in store. News alert, racial tensions end. Sudden worldwide peace and justice prevail. News flash this morning in a moment no longer than an eye's twinkle. The Son of God appeared and every eye beheld him and everything was made new. The risen hope, the risen Christ is our reason for hope. For the restoration of everything and for the resurrection of our bodies. That's what the last half of 1 Corinthians 15 is about. Paul goes on to say, it's as if you're saying, I want you to know that while this is cosmic, everything is gonna be made subject to Christ, it is also very personal. You and that body that you're lugging around right now, you are going to be changed. Look at beginning in verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. Verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, 
For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Here here is the declaration of our hope. We shall be changed. And if you didn't hear it the first time, Paul says, let me say it again. We shall be changed. We. And he's talking here about our bodies, not just our spirits, but our bodies are going to be changed. We're not going to be just changed into some kind of shadowy, disembodied existence. No, we're going to be given real, substantial, living bodies. And notice the words, they're going to be imperishable, not subject to decay or weakening or ruin. I I just recently got my driver's license renewed. There should be a warning label put on a new license. Warning, caution. The image portrayed on this license is an accurate representation of what the last four years have done to you. The the, the change is is just, really? But it happens now, every four years, I get this reminder, perishable, decaying, aging, weakening, Paul says the day's coming, well, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we'll be shining just as bright after 10,000 years as we were at the beginning. Imperishable. And, and he says, immortal. It's going to be a body clothed in immortality, undying life, deathlessness, and in a perfect world. So we actually want to live forever. And then he says, it's sown in dishonor, but it's raised in glory. Our bodies on that day are going to be such. It will be as if the the radiant splendor of God himself will have shined right through to the core of our existence, down to the marrow of our existence and brought a brightness to it. There will be glory. Which I think it's Lewis, C.S. Lewis says, if we were to see it now, we'd probably be tempted to bow down. Because the angels are going to be in awe of us on that day, the scriptures say. Majestic and glorious. By the way, quick parentheses. This ought to affect the way you relate to each other right now. Every person in this room who loves Jesus is destined for glory, is a majestic being in the making. How we ought to respect and honor and cherish and enjoy one another as those that are on the journey to glory. What a gospel! And it's real. 
Christ is risen. And the risen Christ is our reason to hope. And I close with this. He is also our motive to serve. Our motive to serve. For how does Paul end this chapter? Verse 58. Therefore, therefore, in light of everything I've been saying, Paul says, about the fact of the resurrection. He appeared to many. He died for our sins. He was buried. He rose. He appeared. He ascended. He's reigning. He's going to reign until every enemy has made his footstool. Everything is restored. Everything is changed. He's going to give you magnificent, imperishable, immortal, glorious bodies. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. See what Paul does here. He says, not only is the risen Christ our reason to hope, he's our motive to serve. Because Jesus is alive and we are alive in him, because he was raised and we are raised in him and destined for his glory, Because of this, be steadfast and immovable. Brothers, sisters, no matter what the condition of the world, no matter what the circumstances of your life, stand firm. Stand firm in the gospel. Stand firm in the crucified, buried, risen, reigning Jesus Christ. Stand firm and immovable and be always abounding in the work of the Lord. That's a, that's a Paul's way of saying, be always engaged in doing whatever you can do to build and strengthen the church and advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? Well, because your labor's not in vain. Everything you do here is being seen and recorded and will be rewarded on that day. There's no wasted effort. There's no wasted giving. There's there's no wasted living for those who are making every effort and living and giving and serving the work of the Lord. Be always abounding in it. Whether it's covenant fellowship or risen hope, let's be always abounding in this work. Whether we're young or whether we're old, let's always be abounding. You can rest when you get to heaven. Let's be always abounding in the work of the Lord. Yes, take your Sabbath rest. Get some rest. I don't want to be misheard here. Yeah, there are days to rest. But life should be marked by always abounding in the work of the Lord. Because our labor is not in vain. He is our motive to serve. So, let's live this way. Let's believe in the fact of the resurrection. Christ is risen. And the risen Christ, he is our reason to hope. And he is our motive to serve. And let us be faithful wherever we are this week. Throughout our lives, let us be faithful to such a Lord and Savior as this. Amen. Amen.